White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading platforms and institutions for contemporary art. Visit us online at whitehotmagazine.com and follow us on social media. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle, for that very generous introduction. And it's a pleasure to be here. I haven't been in Houston in a while, but it's a particular pleasure to have work up in the museum uh, in the context of so many amazing things. Um, and a pleasure to talk to you tonight. Um, I have too much work to talk about. I mean, I'm not gonna talk about it all tonight because I have too much work to talk about, so I've sort of selected out uh, maybe paintings and neons as a kind of two bodies of work that I'm gonna concentrate on. Um, this is, and I'm sorry, I forget what my work's about, so um, I have it on my phone. Um, or rather, my brain. I have it on my brain, which is my phone. Um, so I have some notes. Um, and if there are things that are unclear, we can talk about it in the Q&A after. So um, this painting is sort of, um, I was joking with a curator who did my Whitney show that this is like official Glenn, but he said, no, 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 there's pre-Glenn. So uh, let me show you some of the pre-Glenn. Um, That's pre-Glenn. So um, 1982, Wesleyan University thesis show. That was from a slide. So I was really interested in abstraction, uh, particularly abstract expressionism. The people I were looking at were uh, decoding and Klein and folks like that. Um, that was a phase that uh, didn't last too long. But, um, but my interest in painting has lasted. And I think the issue was that as a you know, third or fourth generation abstract expressionist um, that I imagined myself to be at that time, um, I found that the things that I was interested in, the kinds of texts that I was reading, the theorists that I was talking to, the courses I was taking in context of university, weren't in the work. There was no way to get that into the work. And so at a certain point I realized uh, I had to change the work. So here is real pre-Glenn, and this was a big fight when I did my uh, exhibition at the Whitney because I didn't want to include this work, but the curator said, well, the story is always that your work starts with, you know, I feel most colored, but there's all this work before that that you never show. And, and so sometimes curators are right. <laughs> um, I had to give it to him. And it was a beautiful room of these early drawings that were from 85. The painting that I showed at the beginning was from 89, and that's sort of like the first use of text was around 88, 89. So this is from 85, uh, trying to mar or marry together the sort of ex uh, paint handling, uh, sort of expressionist, what I thought of expressionist paint handling with text. Uh, in this case, a text from uh, gay porn magazines. Um, I like these drawings. Um, I didn't want to show them, but I like them. Um, but they were an interesting way to think about the transition between this this painterly practice and the and the text based work. So this is uh, this is like official Glenn actually. This is like official Glenn. Um, in 1988 or 89. Um, Right after I was making those earlier drawings with like sort of paint handling, I became interested in bringing in things that I was researching into the work. And one of the things I was researching were things like this. Uh, this was the sanitation workers' strike um, in Memphis in 68. It's the strike that Martin Luther King came to support when he was assassinated. And 
even before I saw images like this and knew what this protest was about, uh, black sanitation workers striking for equal pay, uh, doing a protest carrying these signs, um, I saw the sign, actually, as a framed image in uh, congressman's office in Harlem, Charles Rangel. And I knew nothing about the, the history of that sign, but it struck me as an image, and it sort of stayed in my head. And I may have seen that image when I was in high school, actually. You know, you do these field trips and, you know, meet your, meet your congressman, and he was the congressman. And I don't remember anything we talked about, just he smoked cigars, that's all I kind of remember. <laughs> and I don't like cigars. But he had one of these posters in his office and the image kind of burned into my brain. And I wasn't even an artist then. Um, my mother said the only artists she could ever heard of were dead. And so there wasn't a lot of joy at the announcement that I was going to become an artist. And she meant Picasso and Matisse, who were in fact dead when she said this. Um, so that was true, but I had to convince her there were some living artists and some of them had careers and they weren't living at home. Um, so, so anyway, uh, back to this painting, uh, it was based on the signs, it was made, in, made with oil paint and enamel, which don't really mix, and so the painting was cracking and disintegrating from the beginning. But that process of its cracking and disintegrating seemed to me about, in retrospect, kind of our ideas about history, uh, how our ideas about particular historical moments change over time, become something else. What does that sign mean now? What did that sign mean to me uh, in 1988, 89, when I made that painting? What did that sign mean to be carried by these sanitation workers in 68? So sort of trying to deal with, in, in the sort of you know, change of this painting over time, the issues of our views on history, uh, or masculinity, or the civil rights movement, or blackness. Um, so now we're in official Glen as well. Um, paintings using letter stencils and oil sticks. So if you look at something like this, as a detail from a Jasper Johns. Uh, this is when the phone goes on to power saver mode. Um, alphabets. Uh, 1960-62. So it's a detail. So of course I was looking at people who are using text in their paintings, and I was committed to painting, um, so I needed to find sort of role models, uh, people who are using it, but of course, you know, alphabets is very different than, than a painting like this. And so I was trying to deal with a different kind of content, but also uh, thinking about painting as a, as a way of working. So this is a sentence from a, essay by Zora Neale Hurston, it's called How It Feels to be Colored Me. It was first published in 1928. Uh, Hurston, a very famous writer of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, books went out of print in the 60s, uh, buried in an unmarked grave, rediscovered in the 80s by writers like Alice Walker. Um, so I was also, I guess, you know, when I'm thinking about it now, I'm interested in things that go in and out of view. Um, that sort of are in front of you, but somehow disappear. And I think the fact that I knew that her work had sort of disappeared from the culture, had come back, influenced in some ways the making of these paintings. So taking one sentence from her essay, How It Feels to Be Colored Me, stenciling on a canvas, repeating it. So the, the way the text starts to disintegrate at the bottom is because I'm using oil paint through letter stencils and it's messy. And the oil paint picks up on the back of the stencils and smudges the letters as I'm making it. So the act of writing, the act of repetition causes this sort of gradual disintegration and disappearance of the text. Um, of course, I was also, when I was looking at John's work, I was thinking about Twombly, too, and thinking about gesture and the scale of his works. Uh, this is untitled New York City from 1968. Um, 
but I was also, uh, through a program like the Whitney program, which I went to in 84, it's a program in New York that's associated with the Whitney Museum, and it's very, you know, one of those art programs where the reading list, if you ever get through it, maybe you have some time to do your work, you know, but the, it was really about the reading list and the discussion, but it was useful for me because it introduced me to other kinds of ways of using text. So Barbara Kruger here from uh, 1980, and uh, earlier uh, work, Joseph Kasuf, Nothing from 1967. So thinking about the possibilities of text, which is a very different kind of trajectory than John's or Twombly. But I'm, I was a painter, so I was just sort of struggling during the Whitney program of how to, how to paint, really, how to keep painting. Um, but I also realized that um, the context for text in my work uh, came from many different places. So this is an image of, uh, by the photographer Martha Cooper from 1982. It's Lady Pink on the train. And you can see pink is scrawled down the side there, and she's got a spray can. So I lived in the South Bronx, and so this is what the trains looked like when I was in, you know, in 1982, when I was going downtown to look at those side Twombly's, this is what the trains looked like at that time. And uh, I remember someone asking me, um, you know, this sort of funny questions where people ask you and they don't really know what they're saying, or maybe they do know what they're saying, like, oh, you grew up in the South Bronx, it must have been a cultural desert. And I thought, well, besides the fact that hip hop that has like, came from the South Bronx and has circled the globe, there was also graffiti, which also came from the South Bronx and has circled the globe. So this was an important context for me. I don't think I understood it, um, the, the idea that text was art, you know, through graffiti, but I think one of the ways I came to that idea was by being literally surrounded on a daily basis with the sort of inventiveness and the idea of tagging and the murals that were on the subway cars. Uh, more graffiti, this case, it's a still from Downtown 81, a film that uh, stars Jean-Michel Basquiat. It's a sort of semi-fictional film, but it, it follows him around the city meeting his friends, basically. Uh, and that's a graffiti that he had scrawled on the building. I think that's on Sixth Avenue in New York. Um, and this is a painting by him from 1982. And what was interesting about this painting, uh, all of his work in particular, is that he's to me, he seemed to be always interested in the fusion of abstraction and figuration, and abstraction, figuration, and text. So there's no sort of identifiable letters in this painting, really, um, but he points to text in an abstract way, and that was sort of fascinating to me. Also, he's just a terrific draftsperson, so um, he was always an inspiration, not that I can draw. Um, Another Basquiat painting, Pegasus from 87. Again, merging abstraction and figuration. And then Warhol, Shadows, which I think is kind of the first big art installation. This is at uh, Heiner Friedrich Gallery in New York and Soho, 87. So I saw it then, I was still in high school. It's kind of the big first painting show that I saw in a kind of museum-like space where I said, I don't know what the hell these paintings are about, but somehow I know they're important to me. And it took many years to figure out what that might be, and I think it has to do something with, again, line between abstraction and figuration, or line between legibility and illegibility. These are the shadow paintings, so what's a shadow? You know, What's a painting of a shadow? Um, so that kind of ambiguity in Warhol, but also repetition in Warhol, was one of the things that was interesting to me. So, um, 1990, so the painting after that first painting I showed you, um, 
I had a studio in New York in a program at the PS1, sort of PS1 is now part of MoMA, but at the time they were separate entities. They had the studio space uh, in Lower Manhattan and the studios were great, but they were full of junk. And one of the things that they were full of were these old hollow core doors. And I was moving this hollow core door around my studio for about two or three months, because I was too lazy to take it. Literally, the building was a block long, and to throw things out, you had to take it all the way to the other end of the building. So I just move it, rather than carry it down to the end of this block long hallway. And I realized that doors are scaled for the human body. Um, they're they're human-sized, you know? And the text that I was using had these words in them like I, you know, I feel most colored. So I thought, well, this is a perfect marriage of form and content. So, and it allowed me to stencil, you know, sort of repetitiously down the surface, and it allowed that hint of transformation of the text you saw in the study to really come out in terms of repeating over and over again this sentence, stenciling it. As I stencil it, the, the oil paint gets picked up on the back of the stencil, it smears the letter, and that text turns to abstraction. But you know what that text says at the bottom because you can read it at the top. So it's about this sort of transformation of language through repetition, but also its persistence, I guess. There's another painting in the series, also from Zora Neale Hurston's essay. Um, I set myself a different problem with the Stranger paintings, which started in the mid-90s, uh, which is how do you deal with a paragraph, <laughs> which seems like a kind of dumb way to think about making paintings, but I, but I guess I, I had been reading uh, James Baldwin's essay, Stranger in the Village, uh, since college, and would read it every uh, six months or so, and so was invested in the text. Um, and Baldwin's essay was written in the mid-50s. Well, let me get you the exact date. I think it was first published in maybe 53 in Harper's Magazine, something like that. Anyway, um, Baldwin is in Switzerland. He's staying in the chalet of his lover's family there. He has brought his typewriter and some LPs, his Bessie Smith albums, and he's trying to write a novel. And he says, uh, for many of the villagers in this little Swiss mountain village, he is the first black person they've ever seen. And so he writes this essay that deals with the fact of being a stranger, what it means in, to be literally a stranger somewhere, what it means to be black in this context. He also writes about his relationship to European history, colonialism, uh, Europe's colonial project in Africa, his relationship to the civil rights movement. He's sort of in a self-imposed exile in France, to, uh, having to escape from the United States. Um, easing the bite of American racism by going abroad, um, but finding it there in some ways, as well as finding a certain kind of space to make his work. The essay is sort of majestic. It covers a lot of ground. And so I decided to try to deal with the essay more as a whole than as individual sentences, stenciling the whole paragraphs of the essay onto these big canvases. Um, but when I was working on these paintings, I realized they couldn't be the same as the door paintings that I was working on with the Zora Neale Hurston text. You know, Baldwin was trained, he was sort of a boy preacher. He, he spoke in, if you read his essays and novels, he speaks in um, kind of paragal, well, he, he speaks in page-long sentences, basically. He writes in page-long sentences. He speaks in page-long sentences. Um, there's a majesty and a kind of gravity and density to the way he talks, and I felt that the paintings needed to reflect that somehow. And so when I was thinking about this series and working on it, I was also doing some prints uh, with a silk screener, and I was talking to him, them about you know this problem of materiality and how I wasn't quite satisfied with the way these paintings looked just as oil stick 
paintings. And he said, well, why don't you add something to them, make them denser, and like, like what? And it's like, well, you know, like Warhol did those diamond dust prints. And I thought, hmm, copyright infringement, you know? Um, too identified with Warhol, uh, this carborundum, this gray carborundum that's fair. Too identified with Warhol, and then the printer said, well, there's this stuff called Magnum that we've used here in printing. And so what's Magnum? He's like, coal dust. And I thought, that's it, sight unseen. Um, Coal dust is literally a waste product from coal processing. It's used for sandblasting and road fill. I love the idea that this shiny black gravel-like material not only materialized the text itself, but also obscured it. Because once you added coal dust to the top of these paintings while they were wet, they became very dense. Um, but harder to read. And so that tension between its visibility, its legibility, and its illegibility is something I'm always interested in. But also, you know, Baldwin in sort of a famous interview sort of talks about, you know, some, I, I, it wasn't Dick Cavett, but someone like that says, you know, well, you're poor and you're black and you're gay, you must have thought, how disadvantaged can you get? And Baldwin, you know, very like European queen says, um, even though he's American, um, says, no, I thought I'd hit the jackpot, you know? And he's really thinking about the place of the disesteemed in American society in particular, but the place of the underdog, the place of the outsider is a privileged place to actually look at the society in, where, in which you're in. It's, it's the place where you see the, the, the teeth bared of the society that you're in. And Baldwin uses that place to talk about all these kinds of issues around ultimately American democracy. This, this essay is so much about European history and his position, but he's really talking about America too. And his conclusion that he might be an outsider in the context of the Swiss village, but he says, it's impossible for me to be an outsider in America because he's been an American since the beginning. You know, this country doesn't exist without black presence. And so he sort of turns that idea of outsiderness on its head. So this is a close-up of one of the paintings that has a sort of a coal dust added to it. And then same series, um, black background with oil stick and coal dust. So very dense, uh, very weighty. Maybe a close-up of the surface of those paintings. Um, I, I remember doing a lecture somewhere where there was like a plant in the audience. This little kid, he was like five or six years old, and he was like, well, I'm not sure. I mean, how do you... It's, what, are we supposed to take your word for it that there's like letters in those paintings? <laughs> Which was actually, I was like, really? How old are you? Um, but it was an interesting question. But, so the way I answered him was, I, I was looking more like at paintings like this, you know, or like this, and he was skeptical. So I said, well, you know, Think about when you learn to write in school, you're gonna get paper with these lines on it, you're gonna write from left to right, then you go down a line and you write from left to right, so the structure of text is there even if you can't read it. So he didn't quite buy that answer, but <laughs> I realized in a way what he was talking about was this kind of method that I set up in the paintings, like the paintings always kind of follow the rules of how you present text, even if that text disappears. You'll still see lines, margins, you know, progression from top to bottom, left to right. And so I started thinking about what if one uses stencils not as a way to make letter forms that are legible, that become legible, why not start with the letter forms themselves and get rid of two things, one, a, a, a text that they're ground in, and also this left-right margined legibility that's been so much a uh, sort of part of the work. So these are paintings that are fairly recent. I started them in maybe two years ago, um, in 18. Uh, they're called Debris Field, and they are made by 
taking stencils themselves, drawing, making drawings through letter stencils onto paper with ink, and letting the ink bleed through the stencil in such a way that you get shapes. So I'm using the stencils again, as I've always used them, but I'm just letting the ink bleed out to create these kinds of shapes, and then to take those drawings and make silk screens out of them and silk screen them together on these canvases. Um, so this was a show in uh, Thomas Dane Gallery in Milan, it's the first, uh, sorry, in uh, Naples, and it's kind of the first excursion of that work. So you can, this is a study from that. Uh, I also, because I sort of was editing too, there are parts of this painting that I didn't like, so I just simply blacked it out and sort of circled the stuff that I liked and blacked out this other stuff. Um, and again, I'm looking at folks like Twombly, but I'm also looking at someone like J.B. Murray. This is a piece from, uh, the date's funny, like 1978, 88, but, uh, writing without content, you know? So the lines are there, the structure is there, it's almost like an American flag, but there's no content to the marks that are being made. So, it's, so that's akin to some things that Twombly was thinking of, just coming from a very different kind of uh, place. But also looking at uh, Henri Michaud, uh, this is from 1960s, his ink drawings. Particularly I was looking at his mescaline drawings that were supposedly made while he was under the influence of mescaline and other things, uh, but really fascinated by the, A, black and white, but also by the fact that they seem to have a kind of content in them. Is it a crowd? Is it writing? But nothing specific, and that kind of, that kind of ambiguity between abstraction and figuration or text, again, is something I was interested in. Um, I started doing debris field paintings with red backgrounds, too. This is for a show last year in LA. Um, looking at uh, sort of basically taking these silkscreen images with these sort of marks on them and flipping them, rotating them, stenciling on top of them with uh, stencils that I made of those abstract marks, which is kind of a funny idea. Um, but I think quite interesting, that's a close-up of it. So there's layers of density of you know the, the marks themselves. Some are quite light, that you can see here, just silkscreen, and then some are stenciled on top through a letter stencil. So this sort of play back and forth between the densities of the text. And I was looking at, when I was making those paintings, things like this, or thinking about I don't know. Actually, I was thinking about this for a long time, but uh, Warhol's work, these, this in particular, um, but didn't want to be Warhol again. Um, so this is Orange Car Crash 14 times from 1963, which I remembered as red, but uh, I think it's more red than orange, but, you know, there you go. Uh, looking at my own work, uh, this Red Hands painting from 1996 that uses images from the Million Man March, which was a march that uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan organized on the mall in Washington, D.C., as uh, around this sort of visibility of black men in the United States. And so using a newspaper image of that march to make images like this. Uh, also looking at this, which was on the bookshelf in my uh, mom's house when I was growing up, the fall of America, which was from 73. Um, I don't know if I ever read it, but the cover is amazing, amazing. So that were some of the influences around these paintings. Um, but I've also been doing neon since, um, I think, 80, 96, maybe. Um, the first ones, or maybe actually later than that. Uh, anyway, I've been doing neons. Um, and in some ways, they were thinking about work like this, Jasper John's Three Flags, 58. You know, John's in a notebook wrote, take an object, do something to it, do something else to it, repeat. Um, so I was thinking about like using this 
symbol, like the American flag, but doing things to it, making work out of that symbol and transforming it by the making of these various kinds of objects. And he, he returns to flags, targets, numbers over and over again in his practice. But I was also thinking about things like this, uh, David Hammond's uh, African American flag from 1990, and this is flying outside the old uh, studio museum in Harlem building. There's a new one being built now, so it's not outside anymore. But this was hanging on 125th Street for many, many years. And Hammond's quote about symbols is, outrageously magical things happen when you mess around with a symbol. And so he is taking the, the American flag and just shifting the colors so that they reflect the colors of Marcus Garvey's uh, sort of back to Africa movement, uh, red, black, and green. Um, here's another version of the flag. Um, I think this actually came from flags that were hanging on the museum. They would get torn up by the wind, and David would take them back and sometimes make them into other works. So this work was called Oh Say Can You See um, from 2017. So thinking about this idea of taking a, uh, an image like that or a word and then transforming it. Uh, and also looking at something like this, Nauman, American Violence from 81, 82, which is dangerously close to a swastika, but doesn't quite get there. So uh, the first one was the word America, um, painted black on the front. Uh, on white neon tubes so that the light comes from the back. Um, so again, I guess it's, it's things that are sort of present in absence, eclipsed, you know, in some ways because of the black painting on the front, but also present because the light emanates against the wall. This one uh, is from around the same time, 2000, maybe 2008, um, painted black on the back and the front um, so that when it is installed and deinstalled over time, the paint starts to chip off and these little points, remember a thousand points of light, little points of light kind of come out of it as it, it travels through exhibition spaces. Uh, Another neon that was based on thinking about Caspar uh, David Friedrich paintings, my German is terrible, Rückenfigur uh, is the neon that I made, and this is an example of this type of painting where there is someone in the landscape uh, or a beach scene or something whose back is to you, back figure, looking at this landscape. Uh, and so I made this neon, and I, I, I had been thinking about that that, that painting for a long time and trying to think about how to make work around it but not really figuring out anything. And then, you, you know, because I'm a kind of terrible at things like Photoshop and stuff, this is playing with an image of the earlier neon in Photoshop and I somehow flipped it somehow horizontally and, and I thought, oh, what's, what's up with this image? What's wrong with it? Like, why is the A not backwards, but the E is backwards? And then I realized, ah, bilateral symmetry, of course. Um, that if you turn an A that's shaped like that around, it still reads as an A. But if you turn the E around or the R around, they seem to be backwards. So basically, I made that first knee I showed you with the black on the front in America, I just turned those letters around to the wall so that the neon that would be against the wall is now facing out. Uh, Double America from 2014. It has, I think this is the one that has an annoying animation, blinks off and on, it kind of dries you out of the room. And um, latest one uh, from 2018. That's another shot of it. And so to end up, just continuing with the neons, um, this is one called One Black Day. Uh, it is the day of the second uh, election 
that brought Barack Obama into office. Um, the neon was only on that day. Um, so lit for one day and then off. And, um, and it was made before the election happened. So someone said, you know, what if he loses? And I was like, well, it's a black day either way. <laughs> Um, this is another one. Um, I think it's untitled, <laughs> but it is the last day of Obama's presidency, or the first day of the other guy. Um, and it was in this public space in the window of the Studio Museum in Harlan. It was important, so it had been up for a couple of weeks before it was turned on, and then it was turned on for this day, and then it went off. So it's just marking this sort of historic moment, but it was important to me to mark it in this space, again, underneath you know, David Hammond's flag in the context of 125th Street with lots of people walking by. Um, because I remember in the first inauguration being in Harlem and the energy around the possibility for this country was so great at that moment. And um, I hope we get that energy back. Um, on Kawara, date painting for today's series. Um, that just happens to be my birthday. Um, looking at those date neons, they certainly come out of this. Encore was making paintings that record the date that the painting was made on, and then he would make a box and line the box with newspaper from that same day. So it's about this kind of like, you know, the calendar and infinity, you know, dates that stretch on into the future infinitely, but also the specificity of that moment. What was happening in the city that he was making the painting in, what was happening in the world at that moment. So it's this sort of markers of infinity, but also markers of specific moment. And that was, thinking about him was very sort of influential in terms of the date neons but also thinking about something like Synecdoche, a piece by an old friend, Byron Kim. Um, 400 panels or so, it's an ongoing project where he would ask people to sit for him and he would paint little patches of their skin, like, you know, in front of their, what's this called? This, back of my hand, yeah. <laughs> Something like the back of, sorry, I just, woof. <laughs> it must have been those G&Ts before the talk. Um, yeah, Synecdoche. So him painting little pieces of people's skin from life and making this sort of modernist grid, but this modernist grid made out of individual observations, like ob uh, encounters with specific people. And the title of the piece contains all the names of all the sitters, and it's an ongoing project for him. So really thinking about that, particularly you know, because it's painting, but also thinking about how he's marking time and marking encounters. Um, so the last neon in the series is, again, only gonna be on, on that date. Uh, it's called Synecdoche for Byron Kim. So it's, it's, it's a sort of homage to Byron, um, but it's also thinking about, you know, Synecdoche is a word that means part uh, representing the whole, and thinking about the election and how that is a part representing the whole, um, depending on, you know, do you vote, do you not vote, uh, what we get when you do or do not vote. Um, and thinking about citizenship, you know, a friend of mine says um, when he's asked um, what does he think it means to be an artist, and he says, "I'm not an artist; I'm a citizen." And I think that's a really great way to think about our responsibility. You know, that art, being an artist is not something over here. Being an artist is being a citizen, and we use the work in order to think more about citizenship and belonging and what this country means. So I, with that, I think um, we'll end on the neon, which is down the hall, but you can see it down the hall. So maybe it's time for some questions, if there are any questions. I think there's a mic just, going around. Yes, so. just raise your hand. Okay, I've got one back here. Hi, good evening. So I have one question. Uh, over the time, like at the beginning with your writing, 
uh, it's fading away, like the, the painting is mixing with the stencil. And then progressively you move to the neon. We were very, like you can read clearly. So how can you do the parallel with like the, your position within the society by the, by the fact that the writing was fading away for a while and then it became very clear and especially with the word America and with dates. So how can you tell about well, this? I guess it, I guess, it's only clear if you think the word America means something specific, uh, means something fixed, means something, you know, that we all agree on. And clearly, we don't all agree on what that means. But I think also this sort of tension between illegibility and illegibility is, is ongoing. I mean, I'm still making painting work that deals with this question, and I would say that the debris field paintings, because they have don't start with a text, are an extension for me of this question of legibility, or even the, maybe the possibility of language, maybe that's a better way to say it, that the words that we have don't really, or the language that we have in some ways is inadequate to the situation we find ourselves in. And so those paintings for me are about thinking about, well, what's the aftermath? What if, what if we start over? Where do we start? You know, how do we think through text or meaning in a new way? Uh, how do we think through the inadequacies of language? So that's one of the things I'm thinking with, with the paintings. But all these investigations are sort of going on at the same time. But I guess I would, again, I would argue that, uh, like, for example, the word America is very clear. Um, but it's not a word that we all agree that what it means, and so it's not very clear in some sense. And also, uh, I remember standing with uh, someone who shall be unnamed, um, but arts professional, who was looking at one of the American neons and said, oh, can you read the word if the neon isn't on? And I thought about that for a minute, and I said, yes, it still says America. <laughs> whether the light's on or not. So I thought, text is mysterious. <laughs> it really is mysterious. Um, another, thank you for the question. Another, there's one there. Um, hi. Hi. I think there's something really kind of poignant about the way the chords hang down from the neon um, and sort of sad and moving. Mm. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Oh, it's just that it's too much trouble to bury them in the wall. Um, <laughs> but I like, you know, kind of truth in advertising. I like that you kind of see what you're getting. It's not mysterious. So the chords were also, I also I think, I don't really think I understand sculpture. I don't really make sculpture. I don't think I really get it, you know? I know what it looks like when I see it, you know? But I don't really get it. So this was my attempt in some ways to make something three-dimensional, even though it's on a wall, to make it sculptural. And so I think the transformers and the chords being visible like that was in a way making it more physical, you know, making the thing have more presence in some ways, but also a kind of, you know, truth in advertising, like what you see the whole thing. But also, you know, Nauman's transformers and wires, they're all visible and stuff like that. So it just seemed like easy, you know. Um, also sometimes, you know, as an artist, you have to pick your battles, you know. So I remember the first time I showed a neon, and it was going to be really expensive to hide the cords in the wall. And it's like, uh, you know, just put the thing on the floor, whatever. But then I liked it, you know, and so it became, then I sort of thought it through conceptually, and I thought, oh, it works with the piece. So that became a kind of signature of them. Yeah. Um, over here. Um, thank you so much for your talk. It was wonderful. <laughs> Um, I, I have a question about um, when you first became aware of James Baldwin's writings. Um, do you remember how old you were and mm. kind of what influence he had on you at mm -hmm. the time? And then how you used him 
fast forward using him in your work. Your right. Work. I think I became aware of him in college. Uh, I had a professor, Robert O'Mealy, who was a scholar of African-American literature, particularly the Harlem Renaissance, so he was my introduction to Zora Neale Hurston, certainly. But we dealt with Baldwin some, uh, somewhat in the classes I took with him, so I was aware of that essay and just kept returning to him, that essay in particular, but his writing in general, more the essays than the novels as a kind of touchstone. So when I made this transition from abstraction to text-based work, uh, Baldwin followed me in that investigation, and I realized that that essay, Stranger in the Village particularly, was such a rich vein to mine, and so it made sense to try to figure out how to use it. Yeah, but he was always important. And it's interesting, I was talking about you know, Zora Neale Hurston sort of going in and out of visibility, her books going out of print and her being rediscovered. Baldwin, too, you know, Baldwin at a certain point, you know, arguably one of the f most famous writers in America, and then sort of like, you know, vilified for his sexuality, called old-fashioned, out of touch because he's been in Europe, you know, but now, you know, Baldwin's quoted everywhere. He's everywhere, you know. So this sort of cycles of, you know, in and outness is something I'm interested in too, around his work in particular, but a lot of work of uh, writers. There was a question there. Yep. In 2001, you and Thelma Golden were talking about post-black art, um, and I wanted to kind of see if that idea, having had a lot of scholarship since then about queering black art and all of those ideas still sticks with you if it's a part of your practice um, and how you're kind of viewing the art world in that lens post-black. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because I think as a term, it was always meant to be elastic, you know, and it described, I think it's sort of very misinterpreted in a way because it's elastic, you know, it's slippery. And it was not about describing a kind of end of blackness, you know, as, as it's kind of been misinterpreted, you know, uh, as in like Barack Obama ushered in the era of post-racial politics and it's like, ugh, hello, no, you know? Um, so it wasn't ever that. It was about how a certain generation of artists, Mark Bradford, uh, Julie Moret to um, you name them, um, dealt with questions of blackness through a kind of, partially through a kind of abstraction, but also through specificity of material that uh, pointed to blackness, but wasn't, didn't have the political program or the educational program or the essentialist program or whatever that earlier generations were engaged with. Um, but I would also say that, you know, once something's out in the world, it takes on its own life, you know? And so I make no claims to it as a term. So I think it's up to artists now to you, if they find that useful, to use it, and if they don't find it useful, to reject it, you know? Um, and I think um, sometimes terms can shut down certain kinds of debates, and I think it's more important that a term gets used like that to open up kind of debates, so. Thank you for, that's a hard question <laughs> to talk about that. And I, leave it to Thelma mostly to talk about it because she is the scholar and curator. Um, because in some ways I presented it as like humorously, it's like, oh, this show if you're post-black children in it, you know. Um, but that term resonated somehow, yeah. Uh, maybe one last question, I think. Hello. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering, there seems to be sort of a balance you have between precision and obscurity. So you have the precision of something like a text and it sort of decays and obscures. And like uh, this gentleman here was talking about sort of this sort of plast, this sort of very elastic sort of post, post, sorry, post black idea where it's, it is a set sort of 
you're a citizen, this is who you are, this is your black identity, but there's more sort of ambiguity there. There's, it's more amorphous. And I'm wondering how you intertwine the ideas of something more precise, like a text, and something more um, obscure, and how that might, might fit into uh, identity at all, or your work as well, work in those things. Isn't that identity? <laughs> sort of like things that are known and things that are not known, things that... I remember, uh, you know, Toni Morrison talks a lot about this in various essays about the critique that um, when her books first came out that there were no white people in them. And she would say, you know, well, we know they're there (laughs) because it's the United States, but also um, sort of the idea that blackness as a subject matter was automatically, by definition, constrained, a limitation, uh, which meant to her that people imagined blackness was something that was already known. A well you just dip in, and there's the water, and you know what the water already tastes like. Um, And her argument is that it's not already known. It's created. We think it through, you know? part of her novels you know, are about that creation. Um, so that's the thing I'm interested in. And also I think identity is not, you know, it's a kind of an awful word because it doesn't, it's used in bad ways, but um, I don't, you know, I think it's much more slippery than we imagine it to be. I think it's much more mutable. I think it's much more interesting than we imagine it to be when we talk about questions of identity. I don't think people of color are the only ones with identity. Um, You would never know it given the discourse in this country, but um, so I think we have to think more in more complicated ways about the word and how it's used and who it's applied to. Well, thank you. Thanks. (laughs) 